You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. My name's James Whitmore and it's Sunday the 20th of September. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the land we're broadcasting from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We've got a great show for you today. We'll be talking about some tiny fossil seals, and a bit later in the program we'll be talking about the ocean construction boom. But first, here's an announcement. Get lost! In science. CR every week to hear Beth, Chris and Stuart discuss news and issues from the universe that is science. Get informed and learn a bit more about the world around you. Lost in Science can be heard every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning and is repeated the following Tuesday at 6am. Word to the nerd. You can also download a podcast. Go to the website at www.3cr.org.au and get lost in science. Six million years ago, Port Phillip Bay and the seas around southern Australia were very different. They were much warmer and they were much more dangerous. There were a lot of quite big sharks swimming around. But there are also lots of other things. James Rule is a PhD candidate at Monash University, and he's just made a really exciting discovery of some seals found in fossils at Beaumaris on Port Phillip Bay. So James, can you tell me about these seals that you've discovered? So essentially... What we've discovered is we've discovered nine new fossils from Borough Morris. So um, the suburb about half an hour drive from Melbourne's CBD in Bayside. And these fossils are of, are of ancient seals that were a lot smaller than their modern relatives that are alive today. Um, and so the fossils consist of everything from the humerus or the arm bone of a seal to an articulated backbone and rib cage of a seal, which is quite a cool and rare find. And they're all kind of different types of seals, aren't they? Actually, we're not sure um, how many types of seals there are. Some of the fossils are only um, complete enough to tell us that they belong to seals, but not exactly which type of seal, if that makes sense. And in some of them, they're complete enough to say that they're a group known as the true seals. And the true seals are sort of like the um, harbour seal in the Northern Hemisphere or the leopard seal and elephant seals that live in the Southern Ocean today. And one of them, the humerus, is complete enough to tell us that it is a monarchine, which is the Southern group of true seals. So once again, the leopard seals and the elephant seals. Yeah, right. And these, are, these aren't seals that currently really live in Australia, are they? Uh, no, they're not. So in Australia today, especially if you go out to, say, Phillip Island or if you go to South Australia, we tend to have fur seals and sea lions. And they're from a group known as the eared seals. And they're named that because they have external ears and they also have the ability to bring their hind flippers forwards so they can sort of walk when they're on land. But these seals weren't around in the um, deep past, like six million years ago, they were still in the north, living in the North Pacific. And in Australia and New Zealand, we had tree seals. And they're different because they do not have external ears. They've instead got very small holes in their head or where sound can enter. 
and they also can't walk on land at all. So they sort of have to like bounce or wriggle when they're on land, a bit like a worm. It's actually quite funny. <laughs> So what was the world these seals were living in? You said it was about six million years ago. So six million years ago, um, so Australia was a little bit further south than it is today, but not too much. And the main difference essentially was the climate. So six million years ago, the Earth's oceans were a lot warmer than they are today. We sort of live in a bit of, even though it doesn't really feel like it with climate change, we sort of live in a colder world at the moment, geologically speaking, which is why climate change is such a concern because it's starting to warm up very rapidly. But six million year ago, years ago, it was about four to five degrees warmer than it is today. And so the ocean life that we had in Australia and New Zealand was completely different. And um, these fossils sort of represent a more coastal sort of habitat, sort of slowly transitioning to deeper waters, if that makes sense. So we get everything from coastal sort of species preserved at the site to animals that live in deep water. And we even occasionally get terrestrial fossils that have been in the deep past washed out from rivers into the ocean and being preserved, which is also quite cool. And I think I've heard that uh, perhaps the giant shark Megalodon was around at the same time. Was it probably eating these seals? Well, it's a bit hard to tell what Megalodon was eating. However, I don't really have a, any doubt that it would have been because obviously the great white shark today um, preys on fur seals. Um, it's very, um, it's known for that. And these seals would have been quite easy prey for Megalodon. Megalodon, you know, was quite a large shark. It's about, I think, three times larger than the modern great white shark. And these seals would have been less than two meters long so they would have been perfect snacks for it so no doubt on my mind it might have been feeding on them snack size seals um so what other sorts of other animals were around at this time six million years ago in victoria where to even begin um so the other i'll start with the predators so the other top predator that we had in our oceans was something called a macroraptorial sperm whale so there's been evidence of this found at Bert morris and they're essentially like a sperm whale, is yet the sperm whales that are alive today only have um, one set of teeth and they only feed on squid. But these macroraptorial sperm whales had teeth in their upper and lower jaws and they were incredibly large. They were um, probably about the size of an artillery shell. And so we, this, is, we, this is sort of inferred to be evidence that they fed on large prey. Um, in terms of the type of animals that lived alongside these predators. You also had things like um, baleen whales. However, the baleen whales, which are the largest animals that are alive today, were actually quite small in the past. So um, that doesn't mean that they weren't big. They were just like a lot smaller relative to the titanic animals that we have in our oceans today. Um, there were also um, lots of sharks and some of them represent species very similar to species that we have alive today and others were sort of precursors to those species. There were um, tons of invertebrates such as, um, you know, sea stars. Um, there were um, sea urchins. There are very common fossils found at Brown Morris, some um, various gastropods. And then of course we also had penguins. So there were penguins. However, the penguins we have in Melbourne today, the little penguins, they're quite small, but these penguins were a lot larger than those ones. So, they're about the size of a modern king penguin. 
And we also have evidence of sea turtles, which are obviously not really known from southern waters today. They're known to be quite tropical, but obviously it was warmer in the past. And we even had in the sky um, giant flying birds. So there was a bird known as a pelagonifid, which is sort of like a bony toothed bird, whereas it didn't have actual teeth in its beak, but its beak is adapted by it's got very sharp sort of protrusions that are a bit similar to teeth. And it had a enormous wingspan. Um, I think it was over three meters um, wide. So it was um, one of the largest flying birds that ever lived on our planet. So very different to the animals that we have in the bay today. Wow, I'd really like to see like a Bomaris prehistoric park. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we um, have a tendency to call it the deadliest ocean of all time, just because mm -hmm. of how darkly different and bigger and the predators were and stuff like that. And essentially it's not a place you wanted to be swimming in. Like <laughs> I wouldn't be swimming in that ocean at all. <laughs> so as I understand with these seals, these fossils were found over sort of 90 years and you must have identified them in museums. Can you tell us a bit about that? The oldest um, fossil was found in the 1930s. However, we didn't really know about it until my um, PhD. So the earliest um, indicator that there were fossil seals at Bromoris was in the 1970s and 80s when Tim Flannery started collecting fossils at the site. And that's when the museum realized that we could find seals down here. However, most of these fossils were like very incomplete and they really required someone who was dedicated to researching seals to be able to determine what they were. So a lot of them sat in the museum's collections, like virtually unstudied for decades. And then when I started my PhD, it was essentially my job to go through the collections and see what seal fossils hadn't been identified. And on top of um, the fossils that Tim Flannery found, there were also a few that were recently donated by collectors. And there was obviously the one found in the 1930s. It was a partial jaw of a seal, which is essentially sat there in for 90 years and pretty much no one has been able to identify what it was until we, I essentially got trained in how to learn seal anatomy and how to interpret it. And I was able to identify these fossils, which is quite a big task, but pretty cool running rummaging through the collections and finding something that, you know, no one has really realized was important until someone with a different perspective comes in and looks at it. It must be a great feeling to discover something new. Yeah, it definitely is. And it's also very exciting as well because seal fossils, not just in Australia and New Zealand, but around the world, they're incredibly rare. Um, no one really has any idea why. So finding some extra fossils that we didn't know about in our collections was very exciting because it'd be like, um, there'd be, there was one that was a vertebrae, I think, from the back end of the seal. It's sort of like, where the equivalent of our hip regions called the um, sacrum. And there was one fossil that I identified in the collections that hadn't really been picked up. And I was like, oh my God, this is really cool. Like, this is just not the sort of fossil that you sort of get preserved. And yet we have it here at Morris, which was quite amazing. So you mentioned that um, these seals were living in at a time when the waters around Australia were much warmer. Do these findings tell us something about how the world could change under climate change? I definitely reckon it can hint at it. So essentially what this tells us that under a warmer scenario, you have different seals. And 
one thing I did mention was that the seals were a lot smaller. And the reason why I say they're a lot smaller is because when you think of their modern relatives, the monarchines, the southern group, they're all very large. They're usually about three meters or more in length. The elephant seal can grow even up to five meters in length. So they're quite titanic. And these seals live in the Southern Ocean around the Antarctic. So it's a lot colder waters. So what this tells us is that um, colder waters enables potentially these seals to reach a larger size than they otherwise would under a warmer world. So if um, the world continues to warm at the rate it is and the ice caps continue to melt, um, essentially these seals might not be able to adapt to these warmer oceans and they might disappear. That was James Brule talking about his new discovery of fossil seals from Port Phillip Bay. And if you'd like to support the work of researchers like James, you can donate to the Lost World of Bayside Fund at Museums Victoria. Stick around. After the break, we're going to be talking about the ocean construction boom. But first, we're going to go to a song. This is Alinta with Red. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. See me broke. I bled when they spoke. Dim red light when I woke. Told universe you will never see me broke. I bled when they spoke. Dim red light when I woke. Told universe you will never see me broke. You will never see me broken. You will never see me broke. 
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. That was Alinta with Red. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio 855am. We talk a lot about things we build on land and their impact on the environment, like mines and buildings and roads, but there's a lot of building that goes on under the sea as well. Dr. Anna Bugnot at the University of Sydney has just published a paper looking at how much ocean construction is going on, and it's a lot, particularly around our coasts. That's concerning because ocean construction often involves destroying the habitat where sea creatures like to live, and also involves noise pollution around ports. Anna's research also looked at the marine construction boom that's coming in the future, and surprisingly, part of it is driven by renewable energy. So Anna, your recent paper is about ocean construction. Could you tell us a bit about what ocean construction is? Um, Ocean construction is any type of uh, human development in the ocean. Um, We took a definition on about about human construction that really really is about um, things like marinas and oil and and gas rigs and offshore um, structures for renewable energy, um, artificial reefs, and we we took we took a, a a definition that is a bit a bit constrained maybe of um, in terms of what you can think about human construction because in human construction you can also think about, for example, um, wrecks uh, that have gone accidentally uh, into the bottom of the ocean and we have not really not really considered those in our study. Um, but um, our, our idea is to just consider the kind of structures that are. Um, that are planned and 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 um, constructed in the ocean, and therefore uh, we can have some control in terms of planning, in terms of marine spatial planning, and trying to get to do that the best way possible. Yeah, so there's because there's a lot under the water, isn't there? I mean, there's I mean all sorts of pipelines and you know um, yes. internet technology that we don't often think about, is there? That's right. So you, people often think about a seawall or a breakwater piling or marina, but yes, there's a lot more that is outside our site. And um, there is um, kilometers and kilometers of cables, um, millions of kilometers of cables under the water. We have pipelines, um, a lot of the oil and gas rigs that are offshore, they have to transport that, and that doesn't always happen on a ship. A lot of times there's a pipe that runs from that offshore um, field into land. So there's a lot of pipeline at the bottom of the ocean as well. And there's things like a lot of artificial reefs. I think that in some areas like in Australia, we are very aware of artificial reefs and they are usually deployed by the governments and um, it's very regulated. But in a lot of other parts of the world, people just put out artificial reefs in their backyards, in the, in the, in the beach just next to their house. Um, and there is no really regulation on that. So there's a lot more artificial reefs out there than we really know. Mm. All right, so can you tell us what you found in this recent paper? So what we found is that um, the, 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 artificial, the marine construction particularly um, occupies a footprint, a physical footprint of around 30,000 kilometers square. Um, and that um, might not seem like an first first thought, but if you think about the fact that most of this structure is really coastal 
um, is along the shorelines, um, either, you know, as a seawall is along the shoreline, but also an artificial reef is no farther than maybe a few kilometers from the shore. Um, then that, that means that those 30,000 kilometers square of, of infrastructure is really all close and clumped together. But the, um, and that infrastructure occupies and replaces um, the natural environments, right? That uh, it lies on top of something. So a lot of times is um, sediment, just bare sediment, which actually bare sediment hosts a lot of biodiversity and it's important um, to consider in that sense. But also a lot of times infrastructure will be deployed on top of um, sensitive environments such as uh, seagrasses and soil marshes. And basically it will re completely replace that kind of um, natural structure with this artificial um, uh, construction on top. But uh, artificial um, ocean infrastructure does not only affect the area that it directly replaced, but it also affects the surrounding habitats. For example, by putting an artificial reef, you're changing the morphology. There's an obstacle for water movement. So you're changing the hydrodynamics around it, meaning that there's a lot of changes in, in sediment and potentially you know, um, uh, other habitats like seagrass and, 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 and mangroves and oyster reefs, et cetera, that are around them. So um, the, the footprint, the real footprint of marine construction is not just a physical footprint, but also all the effects around it. And we found that if we add the area that artificial structures occupies, plus the area they, they are likely to affect around it, we are around um, one to three million kilometers square. So massively um, expands the area uh, that we calculated. Um, and most of that area calculating is really related to the impact that um, commercial ports have um, on noise pollution. So no, uh, around commercial ports, you have a, a big concentration of traffic, of shipping. And shipping does produce a good amount of noise. Um, and so um, the noise pollution around um, ports around the world is really what is adding a lot, most of that uh, around 2 million um, kilometers square estimate that we did. And again, by definition, ports are coastal. So that means that um, that area of, um, of, of, of ocean modification is really lined around the coastlines, uh, which is quite a significant, significant um, effect if we consider that coasts host uh, the most productive and sensitive of the most sensitive, some of the most sensitive uh, habitats in the ocean. And you also looked at how the development of the oceans is changing and you found that, you know, there's going to be a major growth in construction over the next decade. Can you tell us a bit about that? Ocean construction um, will expand and how it will evolve in the, in the following decades. It really depends on the type of ocean construction that we're talking about. So some of this ocean construction is, for example, um, oil rigs and gas, and gas rigs, which are expected to expand some more and especially expand offshore um, while we kind of run out of um, coastal um, uh, fields, we kind of are looking for them offshore. And so they're going to be growing, especially offshore, um, but, as we know, the extent of expansion of this industry generally is not as big anymore as it used to be. 
Um, however, if we think about something like renewable ocean and uh, uh, renewable energy uh, from from the ocean, things like tidal uh, tidal farms and wave farms, which is a, a new way to extract energy from the ocean from the water movement in the ocean, these technologies are just starting, and they will be growing exponentially in the next year. It's expected that around 200% um, will be the expansion of this type of, of, um, of renewable um, energy. And while we want them, while we, they're great alternatives to you know, burning fossil fuels, um, I think the, the, our, our idea and our proposition is that we really think we're going to put them and we plan very well and we have a good grasp of the kind of consequences they can have in the environment that they go in. So we can plan for it. We can probably protect some very sensitive environments so we can leave these structures out, out of the reach of these sensitive environments. We adjust um, with this article, all we want is to bring some attention to the planning and to the fact that the ocean seems to be big, the ocean seems to be huge and regional and that we will never be able um, to 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 affect it in great amounts, but we we probably are already, um, and we need to start thinking about how to avoid um, more uh, destruction of very sensitive habitats. It's so interesting because this is like you know as you say this is renewable energies are going to be so important for how we address climate change, but they do come with potential risks to the environment and it's as you're saying it's going to be so important to balance those risks isn't it yes that's right so there is a there is a technique that's called marine spatial planning um which is a really nothing new spatial planning has been done on land for for a lot of for a lot of decades um and what it does is basically um, considers different layers of information, both social, economical, environmental, to make decisions in terms of where to build what. Um, so a quick example is when they decided to build the airport in Sydney, this new airport that's now in construction, there was a huge assessment of where the nature reserves are, the sensitive habitats, uh, noise pollution, where the people live, transport, etc. All these layers of information are pulled together to decide what's the best part um, to develop that um, airport. So what we are asking and what we want the governments to do is to apply that same idea to the, to the ocean. And, and this is not our idea. It's not a new idea either. It has been done. It has been proposed for a while. Um, the European Union is getting some some is some way ahead to doing this in their oceans, but um, there is really um, the, and there's a few, especially at local level, there's examples um, around the world about this, uh, but it's just not getting traction quick enough. Um, we think we think that we really need to start um, doing doing this at a bigger scale. Um, to be able to plan properly for our oceans, to conserve our oceans. That was Dr. Anna Bugnot from the University of Sydney talking about her research on ocean construction. And just a reminder, this Friday, the 25th of September, is a global day of action for climate action. 
Join in wherever you are, whether it's out on the streets or online. Head to School Strike for Climate for more information. You've been listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. To listen to this episode again or our previous episodes, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. And follow our Facebook page for updates. We'll see you next week and stay well. I'm